and welcome my partners in crime just a quick thank you as usual to all my members my partners in crime members in the members lounge thank you very much appreciate everything you do for this channel and welcome to all the new subscribers and the subscribers that have been with me from the beginning thank you very much love it and as you know i always say you can subscribe to this channel anytime you'd like you can put your thumbs up you can hit the bell button at any point muchly appreciated so thank you very much now on to this case this case is the world end murders now the reason it's called that is because these two girls left this world end end pub um, in scotland and um that's sort of why it's known as that so the thing is with this case it's a case about a serial killer or serial killers because there was two of them um and it's also about the law on double jeopardy now you can see the slides it's quite complicated how it sort of has to be done but i have put slides up for you that anyone that is interested in english law and in scottish law because this is different in scotland so the statutes are a little bit different and um so if you're interested in that then slides will go up as well so listen this person the judge in this case when they finally got this man to court um, for this these murders the judge said the words evil and monster are inadequate ones to describe this dangerous predator capable of sinking to the depths of depravity these were the dam damning words of this judge who sentenced angus sinclair and that's who we're doing today angus sinclair and that was, uh, he, that was him when he was actually sentenced for the murders of teenagers christine edie 17 and Helen Scott, who was 17 also at the time of their murders. Now, it had taken 37 years and it had changed really to the Scottish laws of double jeopardy uh, before this killer was brought to justice um, for these two deaths. But this Glasgow born painter and decorator had killed many times before. So, this case is a disturbing case, it's about murders of young girls um, it is um, also because he had previous um, it's about murders of very young children it's also about um, you know sexual abuse to children sexual assaults on women this man was terrible and so was his partner so let's get into this case I suppose before I get right into details on it I want to sort of we talked a lot haven't we about um in other cases about the advances in dna and stuff like this now this is what really solved this case really which really brought this charges and this you know prosecution of these people and now listen it was an led torch at that time they was using um and it shine and it shone on i think helen's coat and um, also the, the um, knotted tights where he tied them up um, and used to bind their hands and things like this. Um, this this was, you know, directly really, you know, um, forensic scientists to certain areas so they could get DNA. Because as I've said, DNA is so expensive. Um, so you really, if you can find some areas of where you can search, um, it's better because it's impossible really to do the whole lot of the clothing or whatever you find and this torch really highlighted some parts of DNA left when they really looked you know 
there was DNA really was spattered, really spattered, just virtually everywhere under both, on these both these girls and their clothes and the, the ligatures and stuff that was used. You know, because don't forget, in this day and age, um, criminals didn't think about DNA, didn't think that they would be caught later on down the line. So the advances in DNA are definitely what solved this case. So let's get into this. So this World End Murders, it's really a consequential name, isn't it? It's, it's about, as I said, about these two girls. They was in this pub, and I'll show you some slides of the pub. And um, these two, two girls were Christine Eady, 17, and Helen Scott, 17, and it was in Edinburgh in October 1977. So again, yes, this is an old case, but it brings us right up, actually, until 2004, 2005, you know, this sort of time when this double jeopardy came into play. This is a complicated case, this, because there's a lot goes into it. As I said, they had to work hard to get these people, really hard. So this is a Scottish 1977 case. So the only person to stand accused of these murders was Angus Sinclair, and who was acquitted of them, acquitted, remember, in 2007, even though this evidence had been found and stuff like that, this man was acquitted of this murder in 2007. Remember that. You know, this dangerous, dangerous man. But listen, he was acquitted under really, you know, controversial sort of um, circumstances. Now, again, as I've talked about this double jeopardy, it was following the amendments of the law of double jeopardy, which he had, um, which had prevented his retrial. So before that in Scottish law, you could, you could only be tried once for that crime. They couldn't try you again for the same crime. So where this man was acquitted, that was it. No case to answer, should I say, really. That, that's what the judge said. He walked away. He walked away. So the, it needed a change in the law. And because it was such a controversial issue here, and as we go through this case, you'll see it, um, you know, it, it really did change the laws in Scotland in a, in a really big way. And um, so he was retried again then in October 2014 um, and convicted then of both murders in, in November 2014. So they got him in the end. And that's why it took 37 years to get this man for these murders. So listen, he was uh, sentenced at that point after that 2014 trial. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 37 years. Not again the greatest, but anyway. Um, so the longest sentence in the Scottish court at that time, meaning that he would have been 106 years old when he was eligible or potential release on parole. So they knew he wasn't going to get out. Get out. Uh, but he did die in prison at the age of 73 on the 11th of March 2019. So this man is dead and gone and bloody good riddance, really. And I think that's what the families feel and everyone that knew this man feels that it's probably the best thing that ever happened to this earth was this man died at the age of 73. Because if this man hadn't been in prison, he would have continued to kill, without a doubt. So on the 9th of the 15th of October, 1977, Christine Eady and Helen Scott, both were 17, when they was leaving the World's End pub, and it was located in the high street of the Royal Mile, and this was at closing time. So in them days, 11, 
last orders usually 10 30 quarter to 11 they'd have left this pub about 11 o'clock the following day uh, their body well i think it was first christine Eder's body was found discovered in gosford bay and that was eve lavian and um, i think she was found by some um, hill walkers there um, helen scott's body was found uh, again unclothed six miles away from um, christine's body in a corn stubble field. Now, both these girls had been beaten, gagged, tied up, raped and strangled. No attempt at all to conceal the bodies of these young girls. These people, and I'm going to say people, left these bodies just out. Just didn't care. Literally, they did what they did and left the bodies in full view of everyone. Terrible, really. So in late 1977, Lovian and, and the Borders Police conducted a really high-profile criminal investigation into this case, and they collaborated about with, um, or they collected a sort of like over 500 suspects and talking to about 13,000 people, and, um, you know, they took statements from everywhere, really you know they just put out things to members of the public they really wanted to find what had gone on with this girl's murders but don't forget we didn't have cctv in 1977 we didn't have the mobile phones we didn't have a lot of stuff we certainly didn't have dna it wasn't thought about because if it had been thought about this man wouldn't have been caught i'll tell you that now but despite their efforts really they were unable to identify any of the people that were involved in this. Now, you know, it really did, um, the media, I think the Scottish media really went for this case. They, they needed to, it needed to get out there. It was such a shocking case at the time. Uh, and I think um, both photos of the girls, that's where you'll see a lot of photos of the girls around, were publicised, you know, and they were put in the booths, in fame, you know, they were put everywhere everywhere to try and get some information but not much really come through. Now at the time of this investigation um, a lot of the reporters were told that they, about several witnesses, that they said that they'd told police that they had seen Helen Scott and Christine Eady sitting near the telephone um, which in them days used to be located in the bar and I'll show you a picture of that or where they were sitting. But they were also talking to two men. But they, no one really could, they give sort of semi-description, but no one really took much notice. In them days, pubs, you know, in England and Scotland were full. You know, this was a local pub, lots of people were in there. And um, they saw them talking to two men, but not really um, great descriptions were given of them anyway. Now, neither of these men were traced um, or had presented themselves to police to eliminate their self. So... That sort of leaves you to suspect that probably these two men had something to do with this crime. That was the first fault where they thought, hmm, there could be two, two perpetrators here, not just one. So why, I think by May 1978, the police announced that they were scaling down this investigation. Now, um, I think in them days, because they didn't have a lot to go on, you're talking about small police forces here. This is not the days, and we spoke about this in other cases, where this is multi-agency things going on here. These are not. These are small, you know, um, 
even though the, the, it's quite a big police force, but really they were limited to their own areas. They had other crimes to deal with in that area, and because they couldn't find any information at all, it was really scaled down a year later. Not even a year later when you think, really, this was May 1978. It's quite shocking, really, but anyway, it, it had to be scaled down. There was nothing really more that they could do. There was no evidence out there at all. So in 1997, it sort of started up again, this cold case for review, because now, you know, from 1978 was the last time it was really looked at, to 1997, a few years have passed. Also, we've had advances, haven't we, in DNA and stuff like this now coming out. And so it's really important now that these, this, this cold case, and it was, it was a case that was never out of the public's mind in Scotland. It was certainly never out of the minds of their families, of Christine Eady and Helen Scott. They wanted something done. They wanted to find out who was you know, responsible for the deaths of these two girls. It was really important. I think it was important to Scottish people actually as well, to especially in this area, to find out what happened. So this 1997 you know, cold case review from um, I think Lothian and, uh, and the Border Forces uh, Police unit um, instructed forensic work you know because it was just coming into its own come out 1980s odd but by 1997 we were sort of getting there with certain things um, and they wanted this forensic work to be done because now they knew with this new technology that these people had probably left some DNA somewhere on these bodies um, now as a result it isolated the DNA profile of a male found on both girls the DNA um, was original. It was originally about to 500 suspects, with analysis compared to the new samples, but none of them had a match at that point. Because don't forget, 1997. It's not like today's DNA. Where they were still, you know, doing things with it. It wasn't as advanced. So they'd got the DNA, but at that point, it didn't sort of match. 500 suspects is too many. It would never have held up in court anyway being like that you need more you know definite could this possibly be anybody else you know millions and millions to one or billions to one that's really what you're after to get a set and DNA at that point you know I don't know I just don't think they had enough but anyway by October 2003 the following this broadcast and reconstruction of this BBC Crime Watch program and the incident team at Lavian and Borders Police uh, received a phone call from a man who claimed that he had been walking near Gosford Bay on the night of the murders and he'd seen a suspicious vehicle. Now he had not come forward before with that information in the early stages 1978. This was now, he was coming forward now in 2003 after the crime watch because as crime watch started to take off it was in everyone's houses wasn't it? People were watching it, I mean, really in 2003, that, you know, we still only had a few channels. Um, so really, you know, it's something that everyone watched. And so, of course, it hit more people, which then could remember more stuff. It's a little bit like YouTube today, isn't it? We go all around the world, don't we? We can hit a lot more people than they could then. And this was the same in 2003 with this, you know, BBC's Crime Watch. They really did attract multiple viewers and it did generate leads. Very good program, actually. I think the Crime Watch show also generated about another 130 you know, witnesses 
that had not previously come through as well. So not had they just had this man that come forward and said that yes, he'd seen a van that looked like a works van, it was driving erratically, this sort of thing. But they also had another 130 new um, people come through with some quite significant information as well. So that was, it was really good. So on the 15th of October 2003, it was also reported that the uh, Borders Police had enlisted the help of a forensic scientist again, this uh, forensic science services again, to try and determine the identity now of the person with whom this DNA sample. So remember, early on, um, they couldn't really, they had sort of, certain amount they could do now they now they thought they could do even more with this DNA sample so the unknown sample partially matched at this point over 200 profiles on the DNA database so on the 25th of November 2004 um, Angus Robert Sinclair the man who lived in Edinburgh at the time of the murders was detained under section 14 of the Criminal Procedures Scotland Act 1995 in connection with the murders and then again after that they was allowed then once he was you know um, arrested under that he could then be um, mouse swapped and stuff so that's when they had his specific DNA to match that would break that DNA profile down from the 500 to the 200 to the exact that's what they were after. And so I think it was a collaboration really of the new witnesses that come forward from the BBC Crime Watch show. It was also the combination now of more advances that, you know, different techniques they were using. And also that someone must have named him or there must have been evidence that this Angus Robertson Sinclair, you know, in 2004, um, really then was detained and his swaps were taken. There was a reason why this came about. So in 2005, I think it was the 31st of March 2005, Sinclair was arrested and charged by Lovian and Border Police. On the 1st of April 2005, his appeal on petition in, a pri in, in private at Edinburgh's Sheriff Court, charged with the murder and rape of two girls in October 1977. He made no plea um, or declaration at this time, but he was remanded in custody. So on the 27th of August 2007, the trial of Sinclair, of Angus Sinclair, got underway in court free at the High Court Judiciary in Edinburgh. The presiding judge was Lord Clark. The prosecution was led by an advocate deputy, um, Alan McKay, and uh, I think the and the defence was by Edgar Paris, uh, Perez, sorry, QC at this time. Now the indictment alleged that on the night of the 15th and the, or the 16th, so because we know they went missing about 11 o'clock. So between 11 o'clock on the 11 p.m. on the 15th and sometime in the early hours of the morning of the 16th of October 1977, Sinclair and Gordon Hamilton, Sinclair's brother-in-law, we'll talk about in a little while, um, who has since he was dead at this point by the time they got this to call. Uh, presumed, uh, was persuaded or forced the girls into their van. Now, uh, <laughs> we'll we talk about Gordon in a little while because he comes up a bit later on as well. But where the people in the pub, remember, had seen the two girls sitting next to the phone booth, that little phone box, in this little 
area of the pub. Talking to them was two men, and this is what made the police right from the beginning feel that there was two perpetrators involved in this case, even then, because these are the two that never came forward, never tried to eliminate themselves from the investigations at all. It turns out by DNA link that they now know that there was two perpetrators there, but one has since died. It's important that, because it really is what changes this case not for the good. So anyway, they persuaded these girls or forced these girls into their car, show you the van they had, um, and they held them against their will at St Mary's near the World's End pub. And I'll show you, just as they come out of the World's End pub, they were then picked up, probably put in this car. I can't see these girls willingly going into a car with these two men. Anyway, it was alleged that then they drove Christine Eady to Guildford Bay, uh, and it is there where, or somewhere around there, that they attacked, stripped, gagged her, undressed her, tied her wrists before raping her and killing her by restricting her breathing, meaning strangulation. Now, there was two girls here and two men. Now, Christine was the first one to die. That means that Helen Scott would have witnessed that murder. She would have witnessed it. And she would have known her fate. How terrible were these two people? How terrible. So then they took then, it's alleged that they drove um, then um, Helen about six miles away. So again it's alleged that they then took Helen. Um, she was murdered in exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. But it was about six and a half miles. Um, and I think it was Haddington. And it was in a field there or somewhere there because they don't know if she was killed in the van and then dragged there. Um, and that was in Edinburgh, East Laven, and it's that's where she died and that's where they found her body. So these girls were both killed on the same night by two perpetrators. Christine was first, Helen was second, about six or six and a half miles apart. And again, as I said, they was left, their bodies were left, they hadn't tried to hide the body, they'd left these girls, you know, stripped, uh, open for everyone to see. Terrible, and it's terrible for their families to tell the truth, it, it must be terrible. So, okay, this is where this case gets interesting, all right, when it comes to legal stuff and um, defences, if you want to call them that. So, Sinclair pleaded not guilty to the rape and murder, right? So, Angus Sinclair said he did not rape and murder these girls, either Christine or um, Helen, that's what he said. Now, at the commencement of the trial date, Sinclair lodged two special defences, one of consent and one of incrimination, stating that this, any sexual activity between him and the two girls had been consensual, and that if they had come to any harm, the person responsible was Gordon Hamilton. The brother-in-law, or the ex-brother-in-law, who is now deceased. So that was his defence. He's put in two special defences. So, okay, he was seen in a pub talking to two girls, Christine and Helen. These girls have then disappeared, never been seen. So what he's saying is, no, he had sex with them, because they found his semen. 
within them, all over them. He did that. It was consensual. They consented to that sex. He didn't murder them, didn't harm them. That was Gordon Hamilton. He did that. I know nothing about it. And what do you think? <laughs> what do you think the judge did? Well, wait for it. So, all right, the jury of nine women and six men began hearing this evidence on the 28th of August 2007. No eyewitnesses were, or and evidence was led. The Crown's, the Crown really, this case was wholly circumstantial. This is what I say about circumstantial evidence. Very, very difficult to build a case on it, especially now when you've got this sort of defence coming at you. So on the 3rd of September 2007, uh, 2007 the Advocate Deputy led um, evidence from Detective Constable Carol Craig, who noted that Angus Sinclair owned a Toyota Hiace. You'll see this fan. Caravanette. At the time of the murders, that had since been destroyed. Now this is where they believed they picked this girls up in. They was probably murdered in this um, caravanette, and there was other um, crimes definitely committed in this caravanette. But at that point, um, she couldn't confirm, and the police couldn't carry out forensic testing on this, you know, or any of the fibres or anything to do with this car because he had destroyed it. So there was no evidence. So this no evidence is now building up. So it's all circumstantial, right? Now circumstantial evidence will not win you a case. It will not, because you have to prove it. You have to prove it. And I think they thought they had, you know, but without it. And then when you start using defenses and they put these defenses in very early, remember, very early. Now, it, this case would have been different if Gordon Hamilton had been alive, but because he was dead, it's then very difficult, isn't it, to cross-examine someone and say, or for this man to defend himself and say, no, I did kill her because he may have admitted it. He may have said, yeah, we did kill him, but he was dead. So all the blame now, Sinclair has put on to him. Really, clever man, really, wasn't he? So I think... Um, the gene, in 2000, September 2007, another forensic scientist, Jonathan Whitaker, gave evidence uh, that the semen matching swabs taken from Angus Sinclair was found with the mixed cells of the same DNA profile as Helen Scott on the coat belonging to Helen. Remember where they used the torch, as I said in the beginning? That's what they found. Plus, they found it all over. He also told, told the court, though, how the brother and sister of Sinclair's dead brother-in-law, Gordon Hamilton, had provided samples of DNA testing, and that the results of these tests would have been compared to the semen found in the bodies of the victim. He explained that as a result obtained, as these results they obtained are what he would expect if semen was found in the victim had come from the brother of the surviving Hamiltons. So, what the forensic people are saying is, the DNA that was found, especially on Helen, they're talking just about Helen at that point, um, but also on Christine, was from both. Was from both. That means that there was definitely two there. But one is dead. And one is saying, yes, I had sexual. These girls are dead. They can't say whether they give consent or not. Because now you have the dead 
person that's you know a serial killer that's working together with Sinclair dead he can't come up can he and say no it weren't me it weren't just me we both did it he's dead so on the 10th of September 2007 following a legal argument on this matter the trial judge Lord Clark upheld the defence's submission that there was no case to answer and formally acquitted Sinclair before putting it to the jury. Now, <laughs> so the aftermath, right? And I'm telling you, there was loads of it. Following this conclusion of this trial, it was revealed that Angela Sinclair was already convicted. So don't forget the jury didn't know because you don't know the previous of this man at all. You're not told, are you? When you are on a jury, you are only told what the crime they have done now, they can't be judged for previous crimes. It's just what they've done now. Then they find out after all this, this man's been acquitted, he's gone. You know, he is, he is, he is, he is a bloody liar. He is a bloody murderer. He is a lot of things, this man, but this jury has now just found this out. So, that he was a convicted murderer, a serial sex offender, and was serving two life sentences in prison when this case was brought before them. And before, actually, um, it, you know, you just think, this man has already done all this stuff and the jury don't know it. And it's, it, you know, and because then they, the defence was good, give him that, right? The defence lawyer was good, you know, that's what they're paid to do, that's what they did, he put the defences up. And, you know, who are we to say at that point when you haven't got any evidence? You know, I suppose that uh, it could have been true. You know, if this man had never done anything wrong in his life before, or maybe the brother-in-law would have been the killer. But it turns out when you have a person with such a background, like Sinclair did, and the jury don't know that, and I think when they find out, when the public then find out, that is when literally the shit hit the fan with this, with this case. That was it. It was everywhere. People couldn't believe it. They just couldn't believe that this judge had allowed this case to go as no case, no, no case to answer. And literally, this man then, all the charges were dropped, that was it. And under the law at that time in Scotland, he could not be retried again for that murder. That was it, done, over, over. There was, no, there was never gonna be any justice for Christine Eady and Helen Scott and their family. That was it. It was done for this case. But it only gets worse, you see? It only gets worse because then all of a sudden everything comes out, doesn't it? You know, the press are on it, aren't they? The Scottish press are on this in a big way. People just couldn't believe it. So it also is revealed that Sinclair had a previous um, and he had completed um, a prison sentence for culpable homicide. Sinclair first convicted um, occurred, I think his conviction occurred when he was it was 1961 and he was aged 16 at the time and he pleaded guilty and was convicted of culpable homicide of an eight-year-old and her name was um, Catherine uh, Rehill and he served six years in prison for that. Six years! Because I think they thought he was 16. You know, <laughs> I, I listen, her family can still not to this day and that her family have said right from day one that this man would continue to go on murder, and they were right. This man never stopped. And as I said, the cases that we're looking into today, especially the uh, World's End murders, um, were just the tip of an iceberg for Sinclair. 
literally the tip of the iceberg for this man. I think. So this poor eight-year-old, you know, when this, in 1961, um, <laughs> he lived really close to her, he lived near her. And he, um, she died actually through sexual assault and strangulation um, in his family home, in his family home. And so that was that in 1982, five years after the World End murders, he pleaded guilty to 11 counts, uh, to, to 11 of 13 charges, sorry, of um, various types of rape, indecent assault, committed against young girls and he was also then sentenced to life in prison for them. In June 2001, Sinclair still in prison, he went on trial and was given another life sentence for the murder of 17-year-old Mary Gallagher um, and she was found on a footpath near, um, I think, Burnhill Railway Station in Glasgow and that was in November 1978. You know, really, when you think about it, the first case of the World End murders was sort of downgraded in May, wasn't it, 2000, uh, 1978, and he had already killed again, or probably before that, but the one we know about is in November 1978, and um, that was 13 months after the World End murders. So, you know, uh, his background, you know, was bad, but this poor girl, you know, Mary. I mean, she was a teenager and she'd been dragged into bushes, sexually assaulted. Uh, her, her throat had been cut and a ligature tied around her neck. He liked ligatures and stuff like that. You know, Sinclair continually failed to accept any responsibility for any of his crimes and denied all knowledge despite being found guilty by a majority verdict and faced the reality um, and of course the changes to DNA, you know, the, the you know how DNA had advanced over the time. Uh, sample matching anyone other than Sinclair were a billion to one that he had done these murders. Billion to one. Sinclair was only caught uh, for the murder of 1978 murder after a cold case review of the Strathclyde uh, police revealed um, the presence of new DNA evidence which was uncovered during this investigation. So it all comes down, these cold cases, to DNA in the end, doesn't it? That's what it comes down to. But what has happened here with this case is where if this man wasn't caught for any other murders and he had no case to answer for this case, you know, he would be out free. It was lucky for us that he was already serving life sentences for other things, but he wasn't because this man would have clearly have continued to keep on killing. So as I've said, you've had this, Scotland is going mad, right? You've had the press going mad. So what was really then the legal consequences for the actions, I suppose, you know, um, surrounding the outcome of this case? And it, you know, it was far reaching really. It went way beyond the borders of Scotland, I think. And it really, the criminal process seemed to be looking like it was falling apart, you know, it was being questioned left, right and centre and stuff. You know, you had cabinet secretaries and that, you know, referring several issues and all this. Then you had um, the Scottish Law Commission looking into it. I mean, something needed to be looked into. But when you have these cases where you have a single judge, like a sole judge, judging them, you know, there's a big responsibility, isn't it, for that judge 
to take on really to whether you know I mean legally um, he put it to a jury done everything right um, but should that have been put to a jury you know um, or should they just carry it on but I think that listen the law's a law and um, I think these days it has changed and I think I think it was um, there was just so much going on there was so much going on with this case really I mean the, the legal it was just making a mockery actually I think of the law at the point people were especially the public were not happy about the outcome of this case and it and it, it made them feel really uncomfortable I think it made everyone feel uncomfortable to the truth that we th that we would assume that the law would do its job and put a murderer away and stuff but the, you know if you don't understand law in the most technical side of it it's the law is not straightforward and I've said this before and if that's the evidence that was put forward and if that was his defence he used, you know, you have to have it where the jury only don't really know about the past because you're only judging them, aren't you, on the, the offence they've done, they've meant to have done um, and, and, you know, done their time in prison or whatever and for that previous, so you can't bring that up. Would it have made a difference if they'd known that he'd done all that before? Of course it would have. Of course it would have. They would have known what a bloody man he was. But... You know, in appeal, you've got to think, how long would that have lasted? You, you, you know, you can't do things that's going to affect the long outcome um, of these um, sentences. You want to try and get them. And I suppose maybe the judge thought, well, he's done what he's got to do. He's put it to the jury. He's already inside for a life. But the thing is, is when you have a murdered victims like Christine Eady and Helen Scott, it's the families, you see, because they want justice. They deserve justice. People want to know how these girls died, why they died, who done it. Especially the families. They need it. They need to do that. It gives them peace. It gives them rest to know that they have got justice. And they lost that, you see, when this happened. They lost it. So really something had to be done. And I think the public felt that. You know, the Scottish people, I mean, I think everyone felt it all across the place, I think, but just... Um, especially in this local area, really felt the heartache for this family. And this family never kept fighting, never stopped fighting either. They wanted justice and they deserved it. So, let's jump now to the 28th of March 2011. Section 73 and 76 of the Criminal Justice and Licensing Scottish Scotland Act 2010 came into force. On the 22nd of March 2011, in direct response from the Law Scottish Law Commission and probably the public backlash making this happen, finding that the issue of double jeopardy in Scotland's Parliament passed the Double Jeopardy Scotland Act 2011. This Act makes various provisions for circumstances when a person convicted or acquitted of an offence can be prosecuted again for the same crime. There's provisions in it, right? You can't just think, oh, we didn't like that answer, we'll do it again. There's things that have to be done, but it now opened up the option. But what a lot of this discussion around um, with this, you know, um, this case brought up is that is it down now to a sole judge to decide if this, when it, this comes up in court now, 
that you know uh, and I think if it's double jeopardy now you have three judges okay not one that makes a decision you're going to have three judges that make a decision whether that case can you know come back into court it's about three people it's a lot it's a big thing isn't it to put on a judge listen the judge did the judge was slated right but the judge really did nothing wrong legally legally he done exactly what he should have done when you have a defense that comes forward in this um like that where you have a perpetrator that's died you know you know we people are innocent aren't they until proven guilty he put it to the jury and the jury came back that there was no case to answer because of the lack of evidence on circumstantial evidence it's very hard to get a conviction so the judge i don't believe in 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 the first case really did anything wrong legally but morally i don't know you know but if judges felt yeah, we want judges to be certain things, don't we? We want them to, you know, do the right thing and, and stuff. Should we want them to be moral, though? Should we take into what the public think? No, probably not. Probably not. If we want to have a really good system in place, which is fair. Um, I think the law needed to be changed. Because there's always going to be, especially now with DNA uh, and the advances in DNA, there's always going to be new evidence and once there's new evidence these per sort of perpetrators must then come back to trial again they must and this now has changed the laws in scotland this case and allowed that to happen under certain provisions certain provisions so it's really good for that so on the 14th of march 2012 the crown office issued a press statement saying that the prosecution official has instructed the police of border labeling and border police to reopen the investigation into the murder because don't forget now you can't go on what you had before you now want to go in with new evidence because now everything you know where you found before you need to now you've got this dna you now know it's going to be admissible because you've got two of them on it you've got your case a little bit different you're going to use a lot of the evidence you had before but you want to get new you want to make this case stick now because you've got a second chance and this time you want to get him and this is what the police did so this was in the murders of Christine Eady and Helen Scott and it followed this introduction didn't it of the Scottish law in 2011 the Scottish um, Act 2011 15th of April 2014 the Crown granted permission to bring new proceedings um, or prosecution against Sinclair um, Angus Sinclair now Angus's second trial started on uh, the 13th of October 2014 at the High Court of Judiciary in uh, Liverston in West Lothian. At one stage the jury visited the scene of the murders in East Loverton, which I don't think they did in the previous one. I think what they try to do is show them the scale of this murder, of really, you know, when you take people to the scene of a murder and you can see where it happened and all this, you can understand how there was two, you know, how it sort of worked. It, it, it's much better actually if you can actually go to the scene, crime scene. Um, on the 14th of November 2014, uh, Sinclair was found guilty of the murder of Helen Scott and Christine Eady. Uh, and on the 15th of October 9th, of, of the murders of Christine and Helen, um, 
for the murders in October 1977. So as I said, 37 years later, changes to Scottish law, they finally got this man. And this is why this case is called The World in the Murders and Double Jeopardy, because it's got to, and it's a very interesting case, because of one, you know, you're talking about double killers here, you're talking about brother-in-laws and, uh, and that killing together. Uh, you know, it's you know, and as I said, the judge described this this man as this evil and this monster. You know, and he couldn't actually think of any words to describe him apart from them, and that really he was so depraved in in, in his way. This man would have just continued on killing, and he probably killed a lot more, as I said, than what we know. But let's talk about this Gordon Hamilton. Now, Gordon Hamilton was his brother-in-law. He's meant to be a drunk. Uh, he had an alcohol, alcohol problem. He's been full of he may have done some murders on his own. I think I said this when we was talking in uh, Murder Mornings about, you know, how do they know? How do they know what the other's thinking? How do you, how do you know the other one's a serial killer and all? How's that conversation come about? You know, the risk you're taking of telling someone that you're a serial rapist, a serial killer, you know, the risk, you know, and I've said, you know, is it like, are they, you know, they sending out some vibe to each other? How does it come about this? Especially the brother-in-law. I mean, to find two evil people like this that then meet, join up and murder. You know, it's terrible really, but it opens up, doesn't it, wider thinking on this. But anyway, listen, Angus Sinclair was a serial killer. He was. Absolutely, and probably so was um, his brother-in-law, um, Gordon Hamilton, probably was, serial killers. There's a lot of outstanding, there's a lot of different things that people have said in this cases and um, other missing cases in Scotland around this area. Um, and as I said before, when you have a police forces that only sort of are, in them days, investigating their own areas, right? There wasn't no multi-agency police working together like it is now, you know, national. It wasn't like that then. These people, they were fishermen, they'd go different places and they'd murder as they go around. There's so many unsolved murders. And I think you've had some forensic people look at this and some other people look at this and profiles look at, um, different outstanding cold cases and they believe that Sinclair and Hamilton are probably up for about between 14 and 16 other murders. I think there's three definites that they know of. Um, they can finger, you know, it's really what it is, it's about the way they murdered, the ligatures, their MO, their MO, that's what it's about. But don't forget, Sinclair was in prison for a very long time and Hamilton was not. So there is a couple of murders that they think that Hamilton may have done himself. But then there's other issues now that come out with that theory um, later down the line. He spent most of his adult life, I think it was only out, Sinclair was only out of prison as in adulthood for about 15 years. You know, serial killers can do a lot of damage in 15 years, really a lot of damage, even if you say one a year, that's 15, and usually a serial killer wouldn't go that long, but, you know, give him, give him that. Remember, Sinclair started to kill when he was 16 years old. His first kill that we know of was when he was 16 years old. The rapes, the murders, and all this sort of stuff, the abuses, the sexual assaults, all this sort of stuff, 
you know, we, we, we know what he was about. We don't know so much about Hamilton because they were quite loyal, really. He wasn't, he wasn't loyal to Hamilton because Hamilton was dead. He didn't need to be loyal anymore. But he never, ever said for all them years that he was in prison that Hamilton, anything about Hamilton. I think that um, there was another case, I think, in 1977. Um, I think it was Hilda McAlley. Uh, and she was 36 in Glasgow. Um, I think there was Anna Kenny, she was 20. Um, and there was also um, Angus Cooney, and she was 23. Um, and she was also found in 1977. These cases, they believe, are definitely linked to Sinclair and Hamilton. These three, definitely. Um, these, these three women were dumped and killed um, very similar way you know, to the way of Christine and Helen um, were murdered. And they sort of, killers have sort of a signature. They do change occasionally, right? They do. They might evolve a little bit. But he liked to use ties, you know, strangle you. He liked that. He liked to tie you up. There were certain things they liked to do. They liked to do. And especially because there was two of them. Now, they need to tie you up if they're taking two at a time, because they did take with these two, because they don't want you getting away. Don't think it's just one on one girl and one on another. That's not how it works with these killers. One of these girls would have watched the other one die or be murdered and knew exactly what was coming for her. That's what these were like. So this MO of these other girls, very similar timing, sort of areas the same because don't forget these people were fishermen they used to go out fishing and these murders would take place as they were doing their fishing now all three girls I think it was August um, was it August October uh, and December of 1977 all three of these girls were murdered now that's not one a year is it it's like one every couple of months there was another um, uh, a Former detective uh, Chris Clark, and he, they do some podcasts with Adam, Adam Lloyd and sort of things. Now, they also said that um, Gordon Hamilton, you know, the brother-in-law, they believe that he killed Elizabeth, Elizabeth McCabe, um, and this is like the Templeton murders, and this was in Templeton Woods on the outskirts of Dundee in 1980. Also 150 yards from there, the corpse of Carol Lanning, 18, was found almost a year before that. So at this point we know that Sinclair was in prison, so they believe that this was the work of Hamilton. And that's what they've said for quite a long while, because he was in that area at that time and he, he was a killer. And the MO of this killer was very, very close to that of the other killings. All we know is that we don't know, do we? We don't know if, who killed these girls? No one really knows. They really don't. There was, there's always more than one serial killer going around. Now, Sinclair and Hamilton worked as a team, but Sinclair was only out for 15 years out in the public arena. Uh, Hamilton was out for a lot longer. And did Hamilton have other friends that he confided in that were also killers? We just don't know. We just don't know. Because killers, 
they're either going to kill singular or they want to be a partner, egg each other on, you know, that sort of thing. Look what I'm doing. You have your part, you have your part. They do kill on their own if they have to, but they like to work in pairs. Listen, all I can say to you in this case is, you know, Sinclair died, that's him gone. Hamilton had gone years ago, thank God. You know, I think from alcoholism he died. Um, there's two less killers off our streets, really, isn't it? But a lot of these cases, a lot of cases, especially at this time in Scotland, are still unsolved. So listen, Sinclair and Hamilton have been up for many, many murders. Many, many murders. They could have done many, many murders. We all know that. Um, and I think the, the best thing you can take out of this case is that these people are now dead and gone, and that is it. They've gone. There is no more of them. But there's always more serial killers out there. Always. Always. And in Scotland, there is so many um, women at that time that had gone missing. Was it the work of just these two? Or was it the work of other killers and serial killers in this area? I probably think it's the work of others. Really, I do. I don't know why I think it was easier in them days because they didn't have the CCTV and stuff like that to, um, you know, they, they could do more without getting caught. They didn't have DNA like we do now to catch these killers. But sometimes killers get away with it, as with Sinclair, you know, by the defences that they use, legal defences that they use. And I think it comes to the, you know, and it shows you, doesn't it, how times have changed when we have now Scotland changing its whole laws to make sure that perpetrators like this can be brought to justice in the end. So, this has been the case, really, a very sad case, isn't it, really? A fight, a 37 years fight for justice for Christine and Helen. But in the end, they got it. In the end, they got it. And the family have said, you know, they thanked everyone who fought for years to never let this case go out of people's minds to bring this man to justice. So how lovely for them that in the end, before not all of them, but most of them passed away, that they found out what happened to their children. So you know what to do. Thumbs up if you've enjoyed this case and you found this case interesting. You can subscribe anytime you would like. You can hit the thumbs up button. You can do, you know, the bell button. You can follow this on um, Spotify and let's have a chat about murder. And we will be discussing this case and others, not in this week's Murder Mornings, which is coming up. And the cases we will be discussing in this week's Murder Mornings are um, Little Cheryl Grimmer and um, this case. And um, next week, as you know, I've already released out what we're doing next week, and that is Penelope Jackson, who's just been charged with murder. And it's really, you know, was this uh, calculated murder or was it? coercive control you know and we've talked about this before you know in how to get away with murder listen it's a really important issue at the moment so that's what's coming up um next week so until then till the next time 
拜拜。